It's my favorite part to write is the human pet connection, human animal connection. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 50 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I have to tell you that 50 feels like kind of a big deal. And thank you. Just thank you for the support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with your friends. Thank you for following me on social media, for leaving your comments, for sending direct messages. Thank you so much. I also recently found out that the Believe in Dog podcast is in the top 10% globally. Like of all podcasts in the world, mine is in the top 10% for the most listened to podcasts. And I got to tell you, that really kind of blew me away. It's really very exciting. And it's all because of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I started this podcast just because I was at an interesting time in my life, I felt like I had all of this stuff to say, all of this stuff going on inside of me that I wanted to get out to share about how the love of dogs can impact our lives so incredibly much, how dogs show up in our lives as healers, as teachers, as inspirations. They get us through these hard times. They inspire us to take actions big and small to change our life, to change the world, to make the world a better place, to make other people's lives better. All of this because they are just these furry little balls of love themselves. And I just, I think it's amazing. And I I see the power and the beauty of the animals of these dogs in our lives and in the world. And that was, how do you call that a name of a podcast? I just came up with Believe in Dog. And you always hope that what is important to you, what's in your heart will, will resonate with other people. And you never really know, or at least I never really know. (laughs) And so to find out that it does, you know, it, it blows me away. The, the support just blows me away. The downloads blow me away. I'm so appreciative. I thank you so much, you know, for being here, for listening, for sharing, for caring. It seriously means the world to me. It means more than you could ever possibly imagine. And uh, I wanted to just really take a minute here on episode 50 to, to let you know and to make sure that you know that that is the case. And one of the coolest things about starting the podcast is all of the amazing people that I've gotten to connect with. I wanted to just take a moment to mention that Krista Karpowicz, who you heard on episode 26 of the Believe in Dog podcast, she has been such a great friend and supporter. And she introduces me to so many amazing guests, including today's guest, Jody Burnett. Something that you may or may not know about me is that I am a huge reader. <laughs> Reading is like my favorite thing in the world. It has been ever since I was a little girl. I read pretty much all the time in my spare time. I try to make sure I read at some point every day, even if it's just a couple minutes before I go to bed at night. I have the Kindle app on my phone. So if I'm, you know, waiting for my lunch or stuck in a line somewhere, I always have a book I can pull up. It's literally like my favorite, you know, hobby pastime. I've sometimes thought about that whole Malcolm Gladwell outliers 10,000 hours thing. And I'm like, the only thing I know for sure that I've done for 10,000 hours in my life is read. Uh, So I'm also, I know some people are like totally obsessed with true crime. I'm not totally obsessed, but I get obsessed with certain cases. Like right now, I'm totally obsessed with the Murdoch murders. You might know the Murdoch murders podcast. I think it's like the number one podcast in the world, maybe after Joe Rogan right now. 
um, about this attorney in South Carolina who it appears murdered his wife and his son. And there's all these other cases and financial crimes that are all linked to it. It's, I'm just totally obsessed with that case right now. But I, I get really into reading about crime, both fictional and nonfiction. And so if I'm not reading about a true crime, I'm probably reading, you know, some sort of mystery or detective novel. And so I had the opportunity to speak with Jody Burnett, who is the author of numerous books in the investigation thriller kind of crime genre. And I just, I love it and I'm here for it. I've read almost her whole catalog over the last couple months. And what I love about her books is that there's always a dog. It might be a police dog. It might be a companion dog, but there's always a dog and often a horse uh, that are, are kind of central to the story, are central characters to the story. And I was just really curious, like, how do you learn how to write that? I mean, you'll hear from Jody that, you know, she was a military spouse and became a writer after going through some some empty nest uh, kind of syndrome. And, you know, she's never worked in law enforcement. She doesn't have a, a background in law enforcement. How do you learn about these working law enforcement canine dogs? How do you learn? I mean, there's drug sniffing dogs and bomb sniffing dogs. And, you know, there's procedures and handling and commands. And I was just so curious, like, how, how did she learn about this? Because she writes it so realistically. And so Jody's going to share with us about her background, how she got started in writing, all of the cool things that she's gotten to do uh, to learn about how to write about working canine dogs. And we'll hear about the, the animals in her life. And we also talk about creativity and how do you stay creative and how do you nurture your creativity and have fun and play and how can our animals play a role in that too. So let's get started. I'm so excited for you to meet Jody Burnett. So we are here today with Jody Burnett. Jody, how are you? Great, Erin. How are you? Thanks for having me today. Yes, thank you so much for being here. I have been binging all of your books over the last few months. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you and, and find out where these crazy stories come from in your mouth. <laughs> awesome. But I always love to start out by asking about your childhood background. Like I did not really grow up with uh, with animals. And so I'm always curious, uh, have animals always been a part of your life? What does that look like for you? I have always had at least a dog, mostly dogs and cats. Um, ever since my very first dog was named Fang. <laughs> he was just a black scruffy, I don't know what he was, but he was he was our buddy. He was our, our good buddy growing up. And uh, yeah, we had dogs all along. I had a short period of time, must have been about five years, actually, when after I married my husband and we were in the Marine Corps when we didn't have a dog. And that was, you know, that's no good. <laughs> so we our, our first dog together as a family was an English bulldog we called Rosie. Oh, so she was she was a cutie. But yeah, we've had dogs ever since. And right now I have a, a yellow lab and a Rottweiler. And of course, horses and chickens and cows as well. <laughs> you have a ranch, right? I do just a small ranch southeast of Denver. That's pretty much my husband's dream right there. <laughs> oh, it is. It was our dream. And we find you, you guys will get there. <laughs> it's a great dream. So yeah, I was wondering with being in the military, I imagine it's difficult to have pets. It can be. Um, we actually, we had a Rottweiler one at one point, um, but he, we lived really close together on base and he, when other kids would, there were no fences or anything delineating yards. And when other kids would come in the common area between houses, he'd get kind of upset because he was protective. They're very protective um, and territorial. And so um, I just, we were nervous about him and we, we took him to the vet and to the, uh, to the, the, the sort of um, animal control on base. And, you know, they checked him over. He didn't show any super signs of aggression or anything like that, but we ended up letting him go to someone else who lived on five acres. We just felt better about it. It was because the kids will be, you know, sneaking around and he would just go crazy. Like they're playing hide and seek or something completely innocent, but it would just drive him nuts. And I just, I didn't want to take any chances because, you know, he, they're big dogs. But otherwise, when we had our English bulldog, she moved with us pretty well. The only time we had to have her stay with my husband's parents, we moved to Okinawa for a year. 
and you can take pets over there, but you have, they have to be in quarantine for so long. And we were only there a year, so it really didn't make sense to take her with us. So we left her at home, but, but with good care. So that was good. And otherwise that was, that was it. Yeah. I was, so, I was wondering what that was like, cause I, I'd imagine moving around a lot. My husband's family was military and, you know, mm. he about moving around so much so yes we've never moved uh as a family with dogs so. <laughs> it's not too bad they do well. they do well so i have just really gotten into your reading have you always been a reader a writer a storyteller has that always been a part of your life also i think the best way to put it is i've always been a storyteller in that even as a young girl i had I do have, and I had then an extremely active imagination. And I spent almost, gosh, almost all of my waking hours were in my make-believe world as a, as a little girl. I, my, my family were, you know, they were unwitting parts to my play that I was <laughs> playing. <laughs> but I just, I love to spend time in my make-believe world. I did not um, ever, I never thought about being a writer. That was never something that I really considered much about. Um, I've always loved to read. And I love story, but um, I'm an artist. So I, I just spent more time doing that kind of thing, painting and drawing. But as my kids, I had kids and as they started, you know, growing up and I would tell them stories and that kind of thing. But it really wasn't until they started moving out and my heart was broken. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know what to do. I was having serious emptiness syndrome and I would, you know, cry to my husband and, you know, he, on the other hand, was happy that they were growing and moving out. That was the goal. And, and it is the goal, but, you know, I, I missed them and I still miss them. But finally he said, you know, you, you ought to write a book, you know, maybe you could help somebody else out who's going through, you know, this, this process. And what I really think he meant was that he wanted me to write a book, like seven easy steps to not harass your husband about your emptiness syndrome. <laughs> And I didn't write that book, but I wrote my first book that was fiction about a woman whose children were growing and, and moving out. But then it turned into this whole other, you know, drama and all this kind of stuff. And it was so much fun. And I fell in love with the process of writing. And so that's how I started, be, you know, becoming a writer. And, um, and it just never stopped from there. <laughs> And so one other thing I know is that you had actually done a lot of work with horses in your life too. Um, what did that look like? Yes. In fact, the next book that I wrote is all about uh, work with horses and equine therapy with teens and veterans with PTSD. So I had a business in my 30s and 40s called Horses Healing Hearts. And I did equine therapy with um, high-risk or at-risk kids from the Adams County Social Services here in Colorado. And their social workers would bring kids out. A lot of times they were either kids that were in foster care situations or uh, teen parents. We did a lot of work with some teen parents and um, just that kind of, of population. And they would we'd, they'd bring them out into the arena. And these are kids who are pretty much have been you know grown up in the city and were in the system for most of their life. And so, you know, they were pretty wise to the idea about therapy and office therapy. And, and honestly, they could play the game better than their therapist could. And so it was a, a fantastic uh, medium because you bring these kids out to arena, they're not real comfortable anymore. So they're out of their comfort zone. Now they're in an arena with, in my case, it was three horses. I had three horses and they're, they're at liberty. They didn't have any halter or ropes or anything. These exercises were done on the ground, so there's no mounted exercises in this case. And we would set up metaphors that they could learn from, and they would get so involved in trying to get the horse to do something, like maybe go over a jump or something. And they'd get so involved with that that their process would show, like everything, their coping mechanisms and everything that they would do, either to communicate with a partner or communicate with the horse or even just how they dealt with their own frustration. You could really see it right there in real time. And then we could stop everything and talk about, okay, what was your experience? And, you know, how did that work for you? And talk about some some other skills that might be helpful, then turn right around and practice those skills right then and there and see the different results. And so it was very powerful, um, a little bit shorter because you could say, here's what we saw today. Here's a new skill. Let's practice it. What did we see all in one session instead of, hey, here's some tools to work with in the next week. 
And then, you know, the next week goes by and they come back and how did it go? And then you're only really getting their interpretation of how it went. And that may or may not be um, accurate. Accurate is a good word. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just really powerful, powerful therapy. And um, I loved it. It was, a, it was just an honor to be able to work with those kids like that. So when I started to write my book, Run for the Hills is the book that has this in there. It's about a social worker who, um, of course, she has a crazy client who's, you know, trying to kill her and chases her. And, you know, because I, I write thrillers, there has to be a murderer in there somewhere. But she escapes up to Montana and uh, meets this family, the Stone family. And one of the brothers of this Stone family is a guy who just came back from Afghanistan, and he's dealing with PTSD and also trying to raise a teenage daughter on his own. And she's giving, you know, she has her own issues. So, um, so my character Jocelyn agrees with the school to help these kids learn some some skills, and then she comes to know the dad, and then she does some work with him. So it was really fun for me to try to learn myself how you would deal with PTSD with horses, because horses are, you know, they can be very volatile. And if you have someone maybe uh, exploding in anger or something, I'm thinking, I'm not sure how that would work, like other than, you know, a distant sort of biofeedback thing. <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure. So I did a lot of research on that too, and just imagined how that might look. And it was a really fun experience for me to think about that. So that's, that's all in that book. So very <laughs> cool. It's very cool work. And so I had started with the 10 star canine series. Mm -hmm. I just sort of, I don't know, I just went on Amazon and that seemed to be the first one that I, that I came up. And so mm -hmm. I just fell in love with Caitlin and with having the uh, working canine dogs and she goes into the U.S. Marshal Service. And uh, I'm just always so curious, like, how do you learn about what it's like to have a working canine dog? Because it's a very different than having a family dog. <laughs> it absolutely is. Yes. In fact, they, they always say, you know, people will say they want to have a, a Belgian Malinois because they're so awesome and they are the most awesome. They're so cool, but they're not necessarily a great family pet. Right. <laughs> not because they're not loving and wonderful with a family because they are, but they have so much energy to keep yes. them occupied and, you know, not bored out of their mind. It would be a lot of work. So <laughs> very high drive. Yes, yes dogs. high, yeah. high drive. But so I just have learned um, primarily, I, of course, I have my own dogs, so I, I get the nature of dogs. But um, as far as working canines, I've just done a ton of interviewing. I'm, in fact, just this week, I interviewed our local sheriff here in our rural county. He, he uh, spent 20 years in Phoenix as a canine officer. And then after he retired, he came out here to our little country and is our sheriff now. And he's building a canine unit out there. So they only have one dog right now, but it, it's just really cool to talk to people who, I mean, he has a ton of experience and just learning about dogs. And um, gosh, I've talked to the, another police department here and another, a different sheriff's department here. Um, I like to go to different uh, conferences and things like that, just to learn about these dogs. They're just, they're phenomenal. And not just not just uh, as far as what you think of a police dog, um, the Castle Rock Police Department has a victim's advocate dog too. just a little fluffy dog that especially kids maybe who are afraid can hold and pet when they're in the victim interview, you know, because it's intimidating, even though you're not the one being arrested, it's still you're at a police department, and it's scary. And maybe you've been a victim of a crime. And so they have this sweet little dog in there. It's just precious. And so what have you learned about how these dogs work? So I was curious, like, are they cross trained? Are there drug sniffing dogs? Are there like bomb sniffing dogs? Like, do they all sniff everything? <laughs> I was so curious about this. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's different kinds of dogs. So most police dogs are trained to do, you know, drug sniffing and all different kinds of drugs. They have to qualify and be certified in different types of drugs. Here in Colorado, where marijuana is legal, they cannot have marijuana sniffing dogs here at all because if they alert, you know, it, it just, it's just, <laughs> it's be a very busy. <laughs> yeah, they'd be very busy. It's a, it, but it would be a legal nightmare for, for them. But um, then bomb sniffing dogs are trained to, to smell explosives. They're generally a different dog. Like they have that specific job, but it's not necessarily true. I think dogs can learn pretty much anything. I think that it just depends on what the mission of that particular law enforcement agency is. But yeah, they maybe you might just have just explosive dogs. They can also smell, they can smell anything, alcohol. Um, they can sniff out firearms, obviously for the um, 
the gunpowder and of course they can track people and you know different dogs are better at that than others you know certainly bloodhounds are fantastic trackers but they're a little bit they're low drive so they <laughs> they don't you know like they might not be as excited about you know staying on task but they will stay on task but they want to just kind of sniff around a little bit too and you know of course labs a lot of agencies use labs because they have such great fantastic noses and and you know the belgians can do anything that you that you ask them to do but they are high energy high drive dogs so yeah i i guess i usually think of yeah the shepherdy kind of dogs you know german shepherd dutch shepherd malinois um and in, you know i'm a big pitbull rescue uh, person and so there's always a big excitement in the pit bull community when some, a police agency has like a pit bull dog that becomes a police oh, that's dog. Awesome. I haven't seen that. That's really cool. I love pit bulls. They're the biggest sweeties. So yeah, I was curious if that's, um, if those are primarily the ones that, that you see. Yeah, definitely shepherds, whether it's German, Belgian, you know, a lot of shepherds. I think that they went to the Malinois because they have an incredible work ethic, but they're also quite a bit lighter and they don't have the hip issues that German shepherds have. So it started in the military. Those dogs, they're just fascinating to me that they can get these dogs to repel out of a helicopter and wear goggles and do all these things. <laughs> so amazing. Yeah, I love you know learning about this. So what have you learned about like sort of the off time, like what does it look like when they're not working? Uh, do, do the dogs primarily live with the handler? Are they, you know, are they constantly training? Like what, what does that look like in, in what you've learned? Yeah. Well, I've, the, in the different interviews that I've had, I've, I've come across different perspectives on that. So at the police department that I interviewed, those guys, they had, they had a Belgian Malinois and a Belgian Shepherd. And those dogs are bite dogs. So although we could see them through the glass door, we weren't allowed to meet them because they'll bite you. I mean, if you're not the handler, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. But yeah, so they're serious, serious police dogs. They don't do community outreach or anything with these dogs. They go home with their handler, but they have an, a kennel at home. So they have a sort of indoor-outdoor kennel where they have plenty of room to play and so forth, but they, they aren't necessarily integrated into the family. Now, one of the guys was a bachelor, so I'm sure he brings the dog in. It's just him and the dog. Why not? But for the most part, those are working dogs until they retire. But most of the time, I think that's not the case. I think most of the time, um, yes, the handlers take their dogs home and that they are sort of part of the family, that they're off when their handler is off and that they're on when they're working. They know they're working you know, the uniform or the collar or the, you know, just the different, they're, they just get it. They understand when it's time to work. So that tends to be the more common way to handle that. And then most handlers, when their dog retires, they bring them home and have them because they've, you know, they've grown such a bond. So bonded, yeah. I had the opportunity recently to observe some dogs that were more on the working dog end of the spectrum. And, and I, I do love seeing that bond. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess I, I think you do such a good job illustrating that in the books too. And, you know, that really comes through about the relationship between the dog and the handler. And it's one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons I've loved reading your work and, and also you give me a heart attack and everybody. <laughs> That's the goal. They're thrillers. You should be a little afraid. I will promise that there's always justice and a happy ending after all of my books. I'm definitely a happy ending lover. So there you go. <laughs> Where do these crime ideas come from? <laughs> I know. I worry about myself a little bit. No. <laughs> uh, gosh, I get I get uh, inspiration from true crime or sometimes even just crime shows that I watch. I'm interested in how, you know, what was the crime or how did someone get caught or how did they not get caught or those kinds of things. And I can, I don't know why, but my my imagination just can spring from one little nugget like that into an entire story. So I just, <laughs> it's good to have somewhere to put, to put that imagination. <laughs> so I know a lot of women who, you know, read true crime, listen to podcasts, watch the TVs as well as fictional crime. Like that, I don't know. It seems very common. Maybe it's just the women I know, but I don't know. It seems very common that women get very into this. Has the crime part, has that always been something that you, you know, did for fun or in your spare time, you know, reading, writing? 
Well, funnily enough, my favorite thing to read and still is, is uh, like our spy novels. So ever since I was in, I don't know, high school, I've read, I used to read Robert Ludlum like crazy back when it was vintage Robert Ludlum and not the, you know, now he has someone writing under his his, uh, name, but it's the Jason Bourne author. Yeah. So I loved those books. There's a trilogy. It's the Bourne trilogy, but not the ones that are the movie. Right. So, I mean, those were, those are cool too. That's very cool. I loved the movie, but it's just not the same at all. It's because, you know, because Robert Ludlum wrote uh, Cold War spy novels. So, right. you know, definitely like seventies, eighties kind of thing. So not, it wouldn't go now because I've, you know, pay phones and things like that right. they had to deal with. Very different. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. I read those books uh, probably 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're fantastic. But yeah, so I still love to read that kind of thing. But as far as true crime, I watch it more than I, I don't really, I have a podcast on my, in my library, but I don't listen to it very often. I think it kind of creeps me out more just hearing it and letting my own imagination picture it. It freaks me out more. So <laughs> I too get afraid of these things. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, for some reason, I got really sucked into the podcasting when Serial came out because oh. the original Serial um, with Adnan Syed that happened in Baltimore and they were around my age. Like this crime oh. happened when they in like 1999, 2000, when they were graduating high school and I had just graduated. Mm-hmm. So I, like just hearing the story and just the all the references to what was going on at that time, like that was like my age, my time. It was right here. Like I got, yeah. and then that really started me down the, the, the crime podcast uh, wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> I have a theory that maybe we're interested in this because because we're trying to prevent our vulnerability, maybe like, oh, well, well, if that's what happened, I'll be aware of, of that. Or, or maybe, you know, or I wouldn't have done that. Like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Maybe we can make ourselves feel a little better because it's terrifying. These people are crazy. Well, you know, it is just interesting with that story specifically, the Adnan Syed story, like, the, those were all the things that we, my, my friends and I did. We drove around and, you know, <laughs> hung out and went to parks and, you know, like that was literally exactly what I was doing at that time. And, and you know, and that it, I mean, it really, and it happened right here. And so it just really yes. hit really close to home. <laughs> and then yeah. I have listened oh. to pretty much every podcast that there has been about it since then. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you have any crimes like that that you follow? Um, I don't really. I don't have a specific crime. I'm I'm interested in why some things haven't been solved, like you know, just silly things like the Tylenol when the you know the the bad Tylenol and everybody you know some, a yes. bunch of people died from that night, but we have never caught that guy. That that's crazy to me, you know. Oh, and so I went to a to the law, Writers Law Enforcement Academy a couple of weeks ago, and the woman who um, she was a journalist who broke the Jeffrey Dahmer case, so she. She was the first one to write about it and she spoke and that was, I mean, that kind of stuff is fascinating to listen to her. She was on I the just scene. Got chills. And, yeah. And just her, oh God, it was, it was really something. And she was in her, you know, early twenties when that happened. And, you know, she was, it was pretty horrifying for her, but it was really interesting now to listen to her talk, but she's got a book and of course all those things, but um, just really fascinating crazy stuff. And then also a, a psychologist who worked with the BTK killer. And still sometimes still speaks with him and just, you know, trying to figure out if there's if there's other victims that we don't know about yet and these kinds of things. But yeah, I I'm always uh, I'm always fascinated by the people who are able to speak and interview people and build a relationship with somebody who, you know, has done these terrible things. And I guess it's uncovered a lot of useful information and how, you know, we're able to look at these things and track these things, but (laughs) I don't know that I would have the stomach for all that. I couldn't do it either. (laughs) I couldn't. I have a hard time listening to them talk about their experience. (laughs) So tell us about the Writers Law Enforcement Academy. This looked like a blast. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It was fantastic. It took place just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, it was the, the Law Enforcement Academy up there put on the police side of it. So there was a couple of speakers and that kind of thing was just just through the the Writers Law Enforcement Academy organization. But but otherwise they they just did a fantastic job. They were so professional and wonderful guys teaching us 
all the things that they do. Like we learned in my group, we learned how to, to clear a room, you know, come in and with our handgun, how to hold the handgun safely. Of course, we didn't really have handguns. They were just plastic, you know, but learning how to hold it safely. And while we're, you know, stacked up, you've seen it on TV where the, where the cops come up and they're ready to breach a, a room and they, they're all in a line. And it's, it's like a ballet. It's fantastic. And they really, it is very coordinated and, and choreographed like that. And so we learned that, learned how they do that. It was really cool. And then we did some simulations. We did the virtual reality simulation. So you actually put the goggles on, you know, and, and could have a, a goofy scenario. They, the, most of those were sort of silly, but it was just kind of fun to learn how they, they can train with that. And also the room simulator where they have a big screen on one wall and they do a simulation and you're in the scene. And uh, when I did mine, I was, it was actually a live shooting in a police department. It was, gosh, you know, you go through these and you know, it's not real. You know, you're in a room with a bunch of people, you know, and it's not real. They're just people on the screen, but you get sucked in pretty quickly and realize how narrow your focus gets really fast and just makes you have such respect I think for these people out here, you know, who are, who are policing our communities because their training and their ability to assess the situation is phenomenal. I, I know I couldn't do it. I mean, I, pra- you know, I'd go to these things and I would fail miserably every time. <laughs> I'm like, I like, ah! But, um, but they were really great. And then my favorite was I got to drive um, the police car and learn how they, you know, turn corners really fast and stop and do all their swerving maneuvers and stuff. So that was, that was really cool. And then, of course, there was the canine presentation, which was that was just awesome. Awesome dogs. And we I really learned a lot about, you know, how they're what they're using to teach the scent tracking. You know, they actually they're not in this case anyway, in their department, they're not using actual drugs. They have a laboratory that that concocts, if you will, some a, a scent that is the same scent. And then they have a packet that they can use and put around, but it isn't actually, you know, so they're, therefore they're not actually running around with a packet of drugs to teach the dog. And, uh, and so it can't be dangerous for the dog too. You don't want, you don't really want your dog breathing that stuff in if he doesn't have to. And, you know, they just, they just, we got to watch them alert at the drugs on a car and, you know, and even just a field search, you know, just the, one of the handlers threw his keys out in this open field and sent his dog out to find him. And he ran all over the place. And then he sure enough, came back with the keys. It's just, you know, really cool stuff, really a lot of fun. And just, just really great, fantastic professionals. I was proud of them. So you actually just made me think of something that I had never thought of before with sniffing drugs with a dog, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about here is fentanyl and mm-hmm. how yeah. I guess, you know, even officers come into contact with, with something and it can put them into cardiac arrest almost immediately, uh, even just arresting somebody that had residue on them or something. Do they ever talk about uh, that with the dogs? Do they uh, have, have to do any special precautions uh, for the dogs? Yes. In fact, I'm so glad that you brought that up because another part of we went and we looked at all these different um first responder vehicles, but there was a woman there with her dog who was actually a PTSD dog. So that was kind of neat. I mean, he was, he was a Belgian Malinois, but he was slight and so sweet, the sweetest dog. He would just, he was so friendly and loving and he was just darling, but she was there talking about first aid for, for first responding dogs, for police dogs. And that so many times now your handler probably knows the first aid he needs to know for his dog. But if something happens to that handler and the dog, and you have, say, the fire department shows up. Do those guys know how to, you know, provide first aid for this dog? And so one of the things that she was saying is they have, they might have to give their dog Narcan, which is going to immediately make them get rid of all, you know, throw up and carry on. But if you give your dog Narcan, you're getting it too. Like there's no way you can give it to him without getting it too. And which, so it'll incapacitate you too. And so, you know, and then a dog whose handler is down is going to be, you know, fiercely protective of the handler. So if he needs, you know, medical assistance, then they can't get near the dog. So it's kind of these, she showed us how to, how to hold, you know, do a, you know, hold the dog down and, you know, do different procedures where to, you know, um, take blood, how to feel his heartbeat, you know, and they're talking about like, if he needs oxygen and how they have an oxygen mask that goes over the muzzle of a dog. But if say the dog has a muzzle on, well, you know, the fire department guy, the fireman, he doesn't want to take that off. <laughs> I wouldn't either, a dog who's upset. 
And so they don't, they don't. So then they're like, well, we didn't know he had a muzzle, but she, so she just yanks the tube out of the, out of the mask, the plastic mask. And she goes, so you just put it, she goes, and I would tell him, just put it right inside that muzzle. You know, you can even wrap that, you know, or hold your hands over it to keep the oxygen. It helps. It's better than nothing. And, you know, so just giving them, you know, tools and ideas. And I was just really excited to talk to her. It was really interesting. And, um, I'm really curious if I was wondering too, if our local fire department has that information, you know, because they're who will be our first responders besides the sheriff. So I just, it's really cool to learn about that, but yeah, they absolutely do need to take care of these dogs. They're, they're, you know, a valuable asset and they're, they're not actually, you know, a police officer, but they are that, that police officer's partner and they feel about them the same way they would a human partner. So so now I'm worried that some of this is going to make it into your next book. Probably. You can't <laughs> help that. <laughs> not my next one. My next one was, you know, mostly written before I went. So, <laughs> so, so not that one, but maybe the following one. <laughs> so do you, when you go through life and just take in experiences, are you constantly cataloging like, Ooh, that needs to go in the book. Ooh, that Absolutely. needs to go in the book. Because <laughs> I think that too, sometimes. <laughs> Just that I sometimes run into interesting situations, and I've always wondered if I have a book in me. <laughs> you do, you do. Everybody has a book in them. Whether or not they want to write it is up to them. But you do think of all your life experiences and and all the things that you've come across, and you know how you could turn that into a story, or even you know if some people it's not fiction, maybe it's a memoir. But absolutely, you have a book in you. Just write these little things down. Keep a notebook, and you know keep them. Keep them off to the sides for the one day, for someday. Someday. <laughs> and so I've, I've heard you, um, you've written some recently just about the creative process and creativity and you can't pour from an empty cup. And and so I was just curious what you're like, ha- have you experienced like a burnout or are you just always trying to like prevent a burnout or um, how do you sort of protect and, and fuel your creative fire? Well, such a great question. Well, I have a new venture on the simmering pot, in the simmering pot right now, and I have it's a business that I'm calling Elan Vital uh, Create. And my whole goal is to provide the opportunity for creative people, and mostly I believe that everyone's creative, but but people who, especially people who use their creativity in work, because once we take something that's our passion and our and our creative expression, and we turn it into a job we have the danger of running into a block or or just taking the joy out of it, losing the the fun and the play. And when we were kids, we didn't care, right? We didn't care if it was good. We didn't care what was good. It was just something I wrote or draw, I drew or whatever. It didn't matter. You weren't judging it. And now we are like, oh, well, if, if it, only, it was only as good as someone else's or all those things that we do to ourselves. And I, I would like to bring back the play and the joy in our creativity. But especially for those who are, who are working in creative um, ventures, because I, I, I was originally going to call the business cross-training your creativity. And the reason I was is because I believe that if you're facing a block or if you just are stumped and you can't, whether it's like maybe I, I can't think of the next scene or something like that, it helps me to go do something creative, but something else. So maybe I just go paint or, you know, um, even you can write, but maybe it'd be writing poetry, which I don't do. And so it would be something completely out of my comfort zone. And I, I wouldn't be any good at it. And that's okay. Now painting, I also do. So I, I have some skill there, but I, I get to, I can find that zone that is just sort of that out of your, out of your mind, you know, out of not, not crazy out of your mind, but out of your thinking and just in that lovely space of creating and just be there for a while. It just really does sort of kickstart your creativity in all areas. And so I have this idea that we could do, you know, as a community, maybe try all these different kinds of, of creativity that we haven't tried before and just see where that leads us. I just, that's, it's very much in the, you know, just, you know, thought process still, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. And that's what I do when I have a block too. That's a really, that's a really amazing idea. And just so, uh, like it, to me, it almost sounds scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I would be so nervous about trying something new and trying yes. something outside of my comfort zone. But if you had the permission to absolutely be horrible at it, <laughs> right. And, and that, and, and that all of us, even, you know, even somebody who's naturally creative is also going to be horrible at something you've never tried. And horrible is probably strong, but 
but you know what I mean? You're not going to be great at it and it's okay. And, and how, if we could just allow ourselves to play and remember that it doesn't have to be anything. We're so product oriented, I think, in our culture that it has to have a reason and a purpose and hopefully I can make money at it or whatever. And it's just, I think that sort of kills the spirit of it. Right. <laughs> Right. Sometimes it's nice to just do something for the sake of doing it and not because yeah. you're trying to make a side hustle out of it or trying exactly. to you know, build a business. Yeah. And it's also just funny because I never particularly thought of myself as a creative person um, because I'm not uh, like artistic or crafty or, or anything like that. And so it actually hasn't been until the last several years where I sort of realized that I kind of have like my own brand of creativity. Yes. And when, and I'm so much more fulfilled when I am expressing it. Oh, that's so exciting to hear you say. <laughs> yes. And it, it's, uh, so it, it's just been interesting to kind of realize that it doesn't have to be drawing or um, sculpting or, or something like that, that, you know, there are other ways. Right. This podcast is creativity, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so it's been, it's been really exciting to see how much it lights me up to, to do it and, and, and that I just kind of never knew that like I've always, I don't know, I've always felt like sort of unsettled, but then, and now I kind of realize like, Oh, I do have all this stuff in me that wasn't being expressed and I, I'm much happier expressing it, you know, (laughs) that's wonderful. And so I I just love the idea of constantly exploring that and and encouraging others to, to explore that, whatever that looks like for them. And um, do you find that your animals or having animals in your life is replenishing or fueling to your creativity at all? I absolutely do. And I mean, playing with the dogs is always just a nice break for me. But honestly, it's my horses that probably provide that, that peace um, for me. And I have a perfect example. I back back when 9-11 happened, and my husband is a pilot. So it was just clearly disturbing, but also it was for all of us. But um, I specifically noticed that there were no planes flying in the sky. I mean, that was such a, a obvious thing to me. And I was out with my horse at the time. And I just, I just sat there and, you know, just rubbed him and pet it, you know, pet him and just, and he just stood there. Also, this is a therapy piece. Horses, for whatever reason, they just know sometimes. Because this, my, this horse I had, I don't have him anymore. But at the time, he was just sort of aloof. And, you know, (laughs) if you had a treat, maybe he'd come over, but otherwise he wasn't all that interested. But, but when you needed him, he, he would stand there. And I, in fact, I have to go back to that book, but in Run for the Hills, there's a story and in the very beginning of the book, and it's about two two girls who are in foster care. And the story about one of the girls and and the horse that you know her experience in that very beginning chapter is actually a story that happened with one of the kids that I worked with and mm-hmm. my horse. That, you know, she ended up just throwing her arms around this horse and he stood there. And I'm thinking, wow, because he would normally toss his head and walk off if you tried that. But and over the gate, like that was even more unusual. And, but he just knew, and I don't know what it is. It's an amazing thing, but, but they really, you know, there's that connection and I, I don't, I don't have an explanation for it, but I sure do appreciate it. (laughs) I know that that's definitely one of the lessons I've learned from my animals is sort of being present and being in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I never had, I never really had pets until I was in my 20s you know it was I mean it was like life altering to, yeah. to stop and take that breath and you know lay on the floor and look out the door next to your dog and you know and just sort of start to take in the world from their perspective and and you know get you out of your own right what's going on yeah you know? And, um, you know I, I always feel like there's something very powerful about about that connection and I think and, so too it's my favorite part to write is the, is the <laughs> human pet connection, connection. human animal connection. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of your own personal stuff that went into Run for the Hills. With your other books, uh, do you find yourself incorporating like any of your yourself or your own experiences uh, into them? Absolutely. And, you know, I talk with other authors and we all sort of laugh about how much of us are in our books. I mean, yeah. you can't, you can't, you can't not. So when you know an author like my kids, they read this stuff and they they laugh because I might have a phrase that they know I I use or that someone in our family uses or a tradition or you know maybe it's a food. Maybe there's food. I I like to put food in my books a lot, and when I do that, it's usually 
something like that, or, you know, names or, you know, whatever it is, but, but people who know you well can see you very clearly. I would say that you are a part of every single character in your book, even the bad guys. You have to, I mean, there's part of you in there. There has to be. Do your kids read your writing? Uh, my girls do. My boys do not. So, oh. <laughs> you know, they're not big readers, I guess. So one of the things I thought that I just love seeing, um, you know, particularly with the Caitlin character, I have read a lot of different crime and um, like the cozy mystery kind of style. Uh-huh. And I feel like there's almost like a, this genre of what I'm going to call like these bumbling Scooby-Doo women, you know, <laughs> that are like, you know, the nosy girlfriend that won't right. just leave well enough alone or the person <laughs> who's like accidentally running into things and right and sometimes I get like a little like ah here we go again you know sure. with, like the bumbling woman or something and so I just love seeing like a a competent you know <laughs> woman, like female character who, who you know who can be you know isn't scooby-dooing around or something you know that's right <laughs> yeah she's definitely a, a strong strong-minded strong-willed person and she's bright. I think she's smart. She's she's a good investigator. One of the things I think is fun is that I she became a US marshal, which is super exciting for me because I can take her anywhere in the country. She can have a lot of different jobs because the marshals do everything. However, they don't investigate. So they primarily are chasing fugitives. That's their their primary job. And so they already know that the fugitives, a criminal, you know, right, they're not right. really doing an investigation. They hunt them down. So in, they investigate where they are maybe, but they're not investigating the crime. And so sometimes as a writer, that's a little, you know, like, oh, well, I guess I can't really go there. And so Caitlin also is frustrated sometimes when she can't investigate when she wants to investigate. <laughs> so that that's kind of a, a little, little tidbit for you. But yeah, so Caitlin, um, has a lot of traits that my youngest daughter has. So she's very strong minded and strong willed person. And she's very, very bright. Now she's not in in law enforcement. She did think she wanted to go into the study of law for a while, but she, uh, she worked at a family law firm for a while. And it's just, that's such a brutal. Oh yeah. That'll cheat you up and switch out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it did. And she just said, you know, she just, she didn't want to go Proceed, proceed with law anymore, but um, but she did get a degree in uh, in uh, criminal criminal justice. Yes, thank you. That's actually what my degree is in. Okay, well there you and go. Then I went into being a, a paralegal. <laughs> yeah, well, so she did too. And you actually had a really interesting statistic on your website that only about it was like six and a half percent of the canine officers in the U.S. are women. Yeah, And I was shocked by that just simply because of the fact that like 80% of the dog trainers I know are women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that true? It's very true. Um, and I just think it's probably just the same old, the same old things that we deal with as, as more and more women learn to be handlers and want to be handlers. It's, it's, you know, it's extremely competitive. I know to get into the dog handling um, section to the to the canine units. Everybody wants that job. It's a great job. Um, but I, I imagine we'll see more and more women entering that as we see more and more women entering law enforcement in general. Yeah, I mean, it was such, a, I think you said 25% of the U.S. Marshals are women, but yet only, you know, we're only yeah. looking at 6% nationally that of canine office. That, that was truly shocking to me. Right. <laughs> in 2022, right. you know. <laughs> exactly. And, and, it's, and it's such an obvious relationship to me. Like, of course, of course, you'd have women canine handlers like that seems right. to make perfectly good sense. Right. And I think, you know, there are and, and they'll I think they'll grow. I hope that they just I hope there's a surge because, you know, you know, female law enforcement officers are fantastic and, you know, they do a great job. I, I think that, you know, they, they lend something different to the environment and, and in a positive way. And I think if they had, you know, dogs, too, it just would be even that much better. In my humble opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am so excited to talk to you. I'm going to have links for everybody in the show notes so they can get your books right now. Do you, what do you have coming up next for us? Because I will be reading it, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I have the fifth book in the 10 Star series with Caitlin, and that book is called Bloodline. 
and it is scheduled to come out on September 1st. So, and on Amazon, it says later, a later date, but it's coming out a little bit earlier than that. So. And anything else you want to tease for us? <laughs> well, um, just that you can find, I have three free books on my website. If anybody wants to check out my writing and kind of see if it's something that they like. Um, my website is Jody, J-O-D-I dash Burnett.com and Burnett with a U and two T's. <laughs> You'll probably have a link for that yep. uh-huh. in the show notes. And, uh, and yeah, and, and you can, you know, look me up on any of the social medias. I contact me. I love to visit with people and love to talk to readers. So I'd love to hear from you. JD, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, thanks, Erin. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Judy. I really love this chance to learn about her writing process, learn about writing about dogs, learning about law enforcement dogs. I really had so much fun with this and I hope you did too. I'll have links in the show notes so you can go check out Judy's books and you have to let me know which one's your favorite. And I also just really loved this idea of nurturing our creativity. You know, I know so many people these days who are doing a side hustle or some other passion project in addition to their day job and for me, it's been really life-giving to to have this opportunity to express myself and my own weird form of creativity in a way that I don't at all in my day job. And it still is a little scary for me to think of, of trying other pursuits like, you know, drawing or painting because I'm so not talented in that area. But, you know, I, I'm enjoying this idea of, of maybe trying some different things, having no need to have a good outcome, but, but doing it just to sort of flex that creative muscle in our brains. It's definitely been uh, a really good exercise for me to think about. And of course, thinking about how our dogs are often the source of so much play and silliness and fun and joy in our lives and that that's so life-giving to us too. So that'll do it for this episode, episode 50 of the Believe in Dog podcast. It has been such an incredible ride so far. I appreciate each and every one of you. I'm looking forward to 50 more and beyond episodes. Uh, You know, I always appreciate, you know, your messages, your emails. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you want to see more of or see less of. Uh, You know, I really want... uh, want you, my audience, to to be involved and be a part of this podcast. And I've been putting some polls in the Facebook group. So I'll make sure I have a link to that if you want to join, because I, I really want this to be a community and be something that you feel like you're a part of and feel like you're seen and heard because, you know, I, I am here and I, I do know a lot of you personally. And, and I, you know, I love getting to have these kinds of conversations and I, I want to bring you more of what feels good and life-giving and joyful to you as well. So make sure you check out all the links in the show notes. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook, at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores on Instagram. Uh, I've been trying to be more active on Pinterest. And of course, we have the Facebook group now. And if you really loved this episode of the podcast, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. We all have an amazing community of dog-loving friends. And so I appreciate you spreading the word. That's like the highest compliment you can do is, you know, recommend me to to somebody that you know and and care about. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.